As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. You already know, if I bring back a guest, it means that the feedback was amazing and the episode was really, really dope. Now we have again, Dr. Layla joining us, who is now become a friend of the show. And I'm <laughs> sure she will be on much more in the future. I've taken, she's actually become my friend over the last few months and I've taken her as like a mentor. So if any wild shit I say in the future, you can uh, now ascribe it to the doings you <laughs> can now ascribe it to the doings and machinations of my new mentor how are you dr dr Layla? how are you i'm good but i don't even know how i feel about the fact that you just i'm i'm responsible for all the craziness now basically that basically. is absurd well, you know, well, you know, I'm sure worse things have happened. I mean, you are a whole entire person with agency, but you know, it's me. Uh, I think Afro-pessimism would say otherwise. Oh, Lord. <laughs> well, that's why. We don't have agency, you see. <laughs> <laughs> we have well, the ontological status of being a, as a slave. No, we won't go there. We won't go there. No. Welcome back. Thanks for coming back onto the Malcolm Effect. You already know you're a family, you're a friend of the show now. Thank you for having me. Good, good, good. People really enjoyed your episode and you inspired so many people with pan-African socialism. Mm. So we're going to go straight into it. We're going to say, when I asked you, like you said you're a pan-African feminist and then you quoted the definition of pan-Africanism, I believe given by Kwame Nkrumah, please feel free to correct me. Mm -hmm. That is the total unification, political unification under scientific socialism. My question is liberation, sorry. Of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you. So my question is, why so specific? Because then we've seen now there's so many different brands of quote-unquote pan-Africanism. There's what we call the cultural pan-Africanism and those people are actually anti-socialist or they're anti... and they're actually pro-capitalist, but they mm-hmm. still call themselves pan-Africanist. So mm-hmm. why are you specific in that definition? Well, I mean, for me, pan-Africanism isn't an ideology. It's an objective. Mm-hmm. So the way that... Kwame Nkrumah and Sekou and Kwame Ture talk about Pan-Africanism is that, you know, it, it's not this sort of, it's not necessarily a way of thinking or being in the world. It's not changing our names, as important as that is, right? It's not changing our names as, you know, diasporic people to continental mm-hmm. African names. It's not clothing. It's not language. Not it's not cloth. Yes, it's <laughs> not wearing kente cloth. As important as kente cloth is, Yes. It's not wearing Kinsey cloth, but it is a political objective. And so that's why I think even for me early in grad school, one of the things that I was really interested in doing was making clear that as a project, I was not interested in diaspora, like diaspora mm-hmm. studies. Right? And when I say that, I mean as an intellectual project. Like it's very clear that the, the diaspora exists, the African diaspora exists. Mm-hmm. But I was interested in the political work happening with what I understood to be Pan-Africanism. And so for me, that's not cultural nationalism, right? That's not even things like the New Republic of Africa movement in the U.S., right? Because for me, that is 
a particular kind of claim on land in the Americas that, in my understanding, belongs to indigenous indigenous peoples of the Americas. Mm-hmm. And so for me, none of the, you know, the socioeconomic conditions that we're working towards, which is socialism, it has is primary, right? And I, and I think that there are, that's not to say that my understanding of Pan-Africanism is void of any understanding of culture, right? Because, you know, mm-hmm. you and I had this conversation, both, you know, Nkrumah and Ture were very in tune to what culture meant for their people, right? Uh, I think Ture has a book, Revolution, Culture, and Society where he's thinking about that, right? Other people like uh, Milkar Cabral yeah. and even Thomas Sankar are thinking about culture and they're thinking about culture in, in important ways, but it's not, but it's primarily, again, a political project, right? It's, that's, this is what, you know, Cabral's admonition to return to the sources. It is to our way of being. Yeah. And so that for me is why it's necessary to be specific because you know it's not a geographical project, right? It's not pan as in across the across the continent only. That's a part of it, but it's not only that. And so yes. for me, understanding pan Africanism as a political objective makes everything that follows behind it. It has to be in line with that particular political objective, right? And so a kind of politics like an ADOS politics, right? Is not something- We're going to go into all of that. We'll, we'll go into it. Today, today, I've got my messy cup out today. Oh, God. <laughs> We're going to pick it all apart today. Okay. No, it's very interesting because, I mean, you raise a few things and, I, and we've spoken, like, not just on the episode, but we've spoken, like, you know, are you an MLM? Are you a Marxist-Leninist? Are you a Maoist? Are you, what brand of left are you? And something that you said to be a recurring theme is you feel that, a lot of the time, these people don't haven't adequately addressed the race and does seem that way. Do you feel like Pan-Africanism does that then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that is, it's the only real serious brand, I guess, of left politics that really does, and not just race, right? Not race in a, in a general sense, but that takes Blackness or Africanness mm. into consideration in a particular kind of way. Because I do think that like, you know, even as we do kind of solidarity work, one of the complaints that a lot of people have, and I understand it, I see it, I witness it, is that our struggles as Black people, as African people, often get pushed to the side and relegated. I think you and I even had a sidebar conversation about this as it relates to Palestine, yep, right? Yep. And sort of thinking about Black people in the Islamic world, and even, yep. and even our sort of global what do you call it? Picture of what Palestine is, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the invisibilization of Palestinians of African descent. And so for me, while I think, you know, Maoism, Leninism, all of Marxism, they all give us something to think about. Mm-hmm. They all are important for us to read and engage with. For me, there is no, I don't identify as any of those things because I identify as a Pan-Africanist. And like, if I were to say that there, and I've said this before, the underlying sort of philosophical and ideological commitments that I have would be in Crumis Tereus, right? Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, I identify as a Pan-Africanist. Mm-hmm. So the question is then, we're talking about like the objective we're trying to reach. You know, we hear about the role of culture and liberation, or we hear the role of different aspects or, or different ways we can come to liberation. Some people, you know, quite wrongly believe in the myth of black capitalism called mm-hmm. liberal liberation. But why do you think it's important that we have such a material take or material analysis or we're talking about material comes first or that we understand blackness as it pertains to the means of production, for example? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, because ultimately that's, I'm, I'm trying to think about the ex, the exact quote that Cabral had says mm. that, you know, we're not fighting over ideas. You know, mm-hmm. ultimately we are fighting t- to change and improve our material conditions. And that's, that's not to say that ideas don't have a direct relationship to our material condition, but it's not mm-hmm. just a struggle over ideas. And so as we, you know, think about what the nature of our struggles are, we're we're trying to live more humane lives. <laughs> and when I say that, I don't even just I don't even just mean those basic things, right? Because I think oftentimes we talk about the very basic things. It's interesting you said that because a lot of the time, you know, when I when people speak of like sorry to cut you off, when people yeah. think speak of um like socialism because the pictures they have is that oh, do we want everyone to be the same, whatever that means. But you know, you want everyone to have the same shit. Everyone must be the same in society. And mm. I don't think, I think the conversation is a bit further than that now, isn't it? It is. But I mean, that's, but that's disingenuous, even mm-hmm. in and of itself, because that, because that was never the goal. The goal, this, the notion of, what is it? From each according to their ability to each according to their need. Mm-hmm fundamentally acknowledges that we're not going to all be the same. Exactly. <laughs> so even, even having that, but also, like I said, it's not even just about, yes, we want to be able to have comfortable and safe places to live. We want to be able to eat. We want to have access to healthcare. We want to have access to education. But those to me are very basic, fundamental mm-hmm. ways of being human. For me, even when I think, when I think about pan-Africanism, the as sort of objective and an achievement, it also allows us to flourish creatively. It allows us to think, you know, we, we in this capitalist world that we live in, we have been made to believe that only competition leads to creativity. And I think that that is false. I think yeah. that, you know, when, when, we, when people are thinking about what kinds of things do we need or could we use to make our lives easier? And when I say easy, I don't even, it's it's interesting because it's not even like a, people often also kind of ascribe a kind of desire for laziness, quote unquote. Yes. When you think about socialism. Yeah. And that's also not it, right? I mean, I do think that there is a desire to terminate this toxic relationship to exploitative labor. But it is not one that says we just don't do anything, but it's one that that acknowledges that leisure time is important. Leisure time is important because it gives us the freedom and the ability to think. And even even under capitalism, they recognize that, right? So prime example, you know, I have this fellowship that's coming up to go to Germany, um, uh, in Germany. The entire, thank you. (laughs) The premise of the fellowship is we will pay you and we will we will you know supplement your income so that you don't have to do the normal things of your job right which are teach which are your administrative responsibilities yeah. and just give you time to think and read and write and research and be in community with other thinkers mm-hmm. so even under capitalism we understand the importance of it's not so much leisure but we understand the importance of time that is not dedicated to a particular sort of rote activity or yes. to or even to directly generating profit, right? Mm-hmm. Like ideas don't necessarily directly generate profit. So even even within the current structures that we exist in, we understand the need for time 100%. to think. 100%. Exactly. And 100%. But then okay, I I'm more and more understanding the importance of why we must see race and have a material analysis with it because of a, and then because you do find that 
that obviously naturally people have class interests and your class interest is dictated by your relationship according to the economic structures in which we find ourselves in today. Mm-hmm. I say that as a prelude because when we have this analysis of understanding race and realise majority of black people, especially in the Western Hemisphere anyway, are people who are poor or in poverty or just getting by. But then we have, we still live in a racist, white supremacist world. So for mm-hmm. example, can as a young person then, can they be upset or should they be upset if they have this politic, for example, when let's say the Oscars snub all black creatives? <laughs> or is it that anyways, why should I care? They're not, they're not you know, why should I be upset that they're not getting money mm-hmm. or they're not getting accolades, even though they ask, even though we share the same skin color? Mm-hmm. I think that both responses have validity, right? Because I, you know, representation does matter. It, it's not, it doesn't exclusively matter. It's not even necessarily the most important thing, but it does matter. Yeah. It does matter to be able to see that it's possible to do certain things, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, so, I mean, I think whether people decide you know, fuck the Oscars, who cares, yeah. we don't need their validation, or all of this work, even what's the the newest, you know, scandal right now is Shikari, what's her name? Yeah. Richardson, Richardson. Yeah. Richardson is smoking weed, right? And and being and being taken or sorry, being disqualified from the yeah. Olympic the Olympics. Now, this I don't know. People are of multiple like opinions about this, right? Like, okay, they're they athletes know that they're not supposed to be dealing with any kind of illicit substances within yes. this window or period that they are, you know, getting ready to compete. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're also across the United States. There's already talks of legalizing marijuana at the federal exactly. level, at the federal exactly. level, not just at a state level. Mm-hmm. And these are not performance enhancing drugs, right? If if anything, marijuana, <laughs> marijuana would. Oh no! I was said. I said. So I someone put on Twitter. If she can run that fast on marijuana, she better give her all the gold medals. He better give her all the gold medals. To be honest, yes, exactly. <laughs> someone on weed before they want to sleep and relax and chill. Exactly. But the double standard, right? Yeah, you, know, you know, Michael, Michael Phelps, Phelps. Exactly. you know, was partaking in all kinds. And the thing is, it's not even about. I don't even care to have a conversation about the the sort of ethics or politics of marijuana. the The issue is the double standard, right? The issue is. It is what advantage or disadvantage does it give her in this in this moment? And I do think that you know there is this thing that happens when black when black people ascend to certain levels that they try these like very petty things to discredit. You've seen the fact that they have seen the swimming caps they banned. Oh my goodness! Listen, so look, <laughs> a competitive swimmer, right? Okay. And the official made the claim that that particular cap did not mimic the natural head shape. Of course, it doesn't mimic the natural hair shape when your hair is thin. When your hair is when thin your and <laughs> when your hair's one A, what do you expect? Like exactly, and it lays down, right? Like that's but no, I like that was that hair was a constant, constant issue for me. Even to the point where I decided I ended up cutting my hair off just because it was easier to deal with. Because none of, when I was growing up, none of those caps fit serious amounts of hair, let alone dreadlocks. Right. Mm-hmm. And so who the fuck cares if it mimics the natural head shape? What is the natural head shape? That that the natural head shape varies and how much you need and the and the point of a swim cap is to create a hydrodynamic glide. Okay. Because things like your body hair create drag in the water. 
So what you need a swim cap for is to make sure that all of the water as you're swimming through the water go, goes glides over your head. If you have long, thick ass locks, it's not going to do that. And if you can't get them all in the swim cap, that's also going to slow you down. Because one thing that often happened to me when I did have longer hair is because the cap didn't fit well, it would pull back and it would actually create more drag. So like even, it, I mean, there are these very like, Okay, that's a material thing, but then where do we draw the line? So let's say, for example, what's her name? Is it Nicola Jones being denied tenure, for example? Oh, yeah. Is that a rallying cry for black people? <laughs> I told you I'm being messy today. I'm bringing names. I'm bringing names. I'm bringing details. <laughs> this is, okay, so this, the thing about this is, right, even in the sort of black scholarly community, there are questions about the nature, like some of the, it's like her conclusion in her scholarship, right? But for me... I mean, she's wild. She took money from Michelle, but anyway. Yes. But for me, like, there's a whole bunch of people out there doing questionable ass scholarship, right? Okay. And so the, so, you know, they try to, I don't know, like, the, I think we talked about this even as it related to Trump the last time we talked. There's yeah. always an element, there's always a, a, what do you call it, a grain or a nugget mm-hmm. of truth, right? To, mm-hmm. to these things that just get exaggerated and exacerbated. You know, I am not one to come, come out publicly and say, oh, she doesn't deserve tenure. I think everybody deserves job security. Okay. So I will never, and I don't even just mean it as academics. I think everybody deserves jobs. No, absolutely. And so I will never publicly come out against anybody's ability to Okay. Okay, My question, again, it's like, again, a reason why I think it's important, I'm just going to kind of be a bit pedantic on this point of the Uh race and class or race and material interest. Mm -hmm. Because then let's say like a Lori Lightfoot, she experiences racial abuse, for example. Yeah. Do we get up and defend her? I mean, I, I I say we. I, I ain't doing shit. I know. <laughs> I, know I mean, this is the same. This is the same outrage. Like, so this is the the, the most like uh, what do you call it? extreme example, right? Yeah. People getting upset about when Oprah was denied her little when she couldn't. Yeah. So whatever. What I think why it's significant. Well, well, I like make a public declaration to get all up in arms about it. No, but it's significant because it continues to show us that even as we you know, so-called ascend, you know, economic ladders, even as we perform all kinds of respectability, our blackness still means that like some shit is just going to be off limits to us or some shit is still going to be questioned, right? And it's like, I fully hear you, but it's like, I'll give an example. When Noah, do you know who Noah Cyrus is? I don't know. I don't. It's a, I think she's a singer, I believe, some white girl. Uh-huh. Uh, and she called Candace Owens a nappy hair hoe or something. Oh. <laughs> see, again, you see what I know I'm being, I'm giving extreme examples. <laughs> but these are the challenges for many black, because I'll give you an example. The people who are not, let's say, Marxists or who are not, you know, the, the average, no, that's, that's BS, the most thing of the average black person. But let's say someone who's just a bit, you know, going through life, not really politically active. These mm-hmm. are the questions they have, because they say things like, oh, those who are black on the left don't back race enough. That's a charge that they give. And so I'm giving the extreme examples because again, sometimes, you know, sometimes it can become very blurred. It can, it can become, I'll give just an example recently. I said this rec- uh, on the podcast with Dr. Joy James. When we've got, a, right now there's a union election in the UK to, and the union is the largest union in the UK. It's uh, 1.2 million members. And we have our home secretary who's like instituted some of the most racist immigration policies like in living memory. Mm. She's a, a woman from South Asia. 
Mm-hmm. She's a, a middle-class woman. And mm-hmm. she's like, she's recently putting legislation that's going to penalize BLM protests. And she's like, you know, she's <laughs> really comfortable being the, the face of white supremacist policies. Mm-hmm. This white man who's uh, running for the union election, he's a socialist, a left-wing guy. He's pretty cool. He says that, oh, I hope she gets deported. Yeah? Essentially saying, I am hoping that she is subject to the same racist policies in which she institutes. But then the black people, were, they were like, we agree with you, but you can't say that. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, even me, I was like, it didn't make me, it didn't actually make me feel uncomfortable. I did not feel a fit type of way. I was like, okay, well, I agree. In relationship to that, I mean, saying that you hope someone suffers the ramifications of the inhumane policies that they hope to implicate, I have no issue with that in a general sense. And it, it's the same thing, right? I was, I, I was and continue to be publicly critical of Kamala Harris in the US context. And you know, all throughout the electoral process, you know, I was I was constantly ridiculed like, oh, we just Did you need vote, to, you know, no. Because I do not believe that it is necessary for me to lend legitimacy to a system that I find completely illegitimate to begin with. And that's why I don't vote in, in the presidential election. But, you know, I my issue with Kamala Harris, and I always said that I always attacked her on her policies. I didn't have to talk about like, do I think she pandered to Black people and played up an identity that she didn't necessarily always hold? Absolutely. But that ain't my grounds of critique for her. My grounds for critique of her are her policies, are her policies that were victimizing the parents of poor children and attempting to either fine or jail them for their children's, what do you call truancy. My problems are my issues with her are her growth and expansion of the prison industrial complex under her under her tenure as attorney general in California. So mm-hmm. I can make real political critiques about her sans any discussion of her racial identity. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to do that. And so like that, you know, I don't, I don't actually care. But the question is, do we leap to her, her defense? I don't. That's what I'm saying. I don't. Okay. I do not. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you 100%. But I feel like, but you do see some people do find it as like, mm, where do we stand on these things? So I, I hear you. Yeah, hear but the you. thing is, if your, poli- if, if your politics drives you, then you don't have no question about that because we know that all skin folk ain't skin folk. For real. Facts. And so we can, we can have a larger structural critique of the way blackness is relegated to certain positions without having to defend every reactionary black person. Mm, for real, for real, and that's so, you, and that's your hot take. Now I'm here. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. You mentioned about ten minutes ago the only black people to exist, which oh, is slavery. You know I don't want to talk about these things. <laughs> who I, who I've had the unfortunate experience to be in dialogue with over the last year, actually. Mm-hmm. Besides the fact, and by the way, this is Ados, African descendants of slavery. For those who don't know, how do I sum them up? Their funders are questionable. They are no, pretty much there's a lot of alignment with fucking uh, Israel in that book. Yeah, exactly. They're xenophobic, they mm-hmm. hate continental Africans, mm-hmm. they are very pro-American, mm-hmm. pro-America, and then and the premise of ADOS essentially is they're trying to get reparations. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get reparations for who? For those who are descendants of slavery only, because they feel like even when we speak about blackness in the context of the United States, mm-hmm. there's a specificity that is owed or that that is that belongs to those who are descendants of slavery and again i don't know the in the in and outs in detail i can only relate it to the uk experience and absolutely i've seen 
the differences between the Caribbeans and the continental Africans. <laughs> Although I think like as much as the differences are, they're, materially they're not that different. They're not at all. Materially, it's not that different. You might get like the new patterns of immigration, but again, that's a material analysis because those who are newly come from Nigeria, for example, mm-hmm. were already middle middle class in their country. Exactly. <laughs> their parents were already like to even be able to get a visa to come to the West. You already had some connection in government. You knew someone working for the visa office or you already studied it in the West in the 80s and now you come back to bring your family. Mm-hmm. So all these things are, you know, have a materiality to it. Mm-hmm. Question is now, you, I mean, you're African-American though. You recognize that it's specificity and how much should we focus on the specificity when it comes to African-American? I am an African living in the American. I am not come an on. American. Come on. Come <laughs> on. Um, no, you know, okay, so even this, even, because I, I don't think it's African, I think it's American descendants. Is, is it American descendants? I can't, yeah, I don't know. So the, here's my problem with this, right? So they, they're, even just in their own naming, they're thinking about themselves as the United States. Mm-hmm. They, how, many, how many, what is it, 13, 14, 15, it's like at least 16, 17 countries in the America, and that's not including the Caribbean, in the in the landmass that is North and South America, and people were enslaved all across this damn landmass. Exactly. So even even just that alone in the naming is problematic because they their relationship to let's say Black Dominicans or Black Brazilians who come to the U.S. is 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 problematic in that way also. And so it so even in the naming it leaves out American descendants of slaves. <laughs> but also like in general, I I do not put a lot of stock in this sort of black exceptionalism, this sort of US exceptionalism a lot of black people in the US like to ascribe, subscribe to, because I don't think it I don't think it's useful. To be honest, I don't, I don't, I mean, we're already in this particular, in the, in the context of the Americas, actually, that's not even true. In the context of the U.S., we are a s- extreme minority, yeah. extreme. But exactly. in the context of the Americas, we are actually a majority. And in the context of the globe, we are a majority, right? Yeah. And so I think it's not even politically expedient. It don't even make sense. Like, it just doesn't. I- and I think it does, it, it really does ignore how racialization plays out because mm-hmm. I think when, and I find that it becomes this kind of essentialist take on race mm-hmm. in general. Because let's be honest, the way I, I've been racialized as a black person in the UK who was born in Gambia but came to UK very young mm-hmm. is a completely different experience of blackness as my literal cousin on the continent. Mm-hmm. And, but, then, but then what you find is that these differences are not overplayed. For example, me and the Caribbean boy both raised in the 90s or early 2000s in, in, the, U- in the UK, mm-hmm. have almost like the exact same experience, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Like the job, I'll give, I'll give an example. We just had a stat that come out from Bloomberg, which is like, you know, assessing the finances of families in the UK. And the average that a black family leaves to their descendants or leaves to their direct um, children next of kin in the UK is zero, by the way. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's the same for African and Caribbean. And that's yes. the US. So... Same again when you have the same for the attainment gap mm-hmm. or in, in, in university level. It's just by a few percentage, literally. Mm-hmm. It, however, there is a difference. I do in, in high school, for example, where Africans do, uh, Africans of like first, first generation seem to do it better than everyone else, to be fair. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't think it's to do with like blackness here. No, I think, <laughs> that's, I think that's a class. I think that's a class thing. And like you pointed out, there's, they're already coming with, in many instances, coming with an education above and beyond what they're expected. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, 
of the, I don't, you know, I don't like talking about these fools. It's a shame, though. And I think, I think ultimately, I think when you're trying to be a thought leader, it's not about being a reactionary, isn't it? You can see, you see this shit that's out there, and you're like, mm, I'm not going to get involved. Well, this is the thing, and this, and I, and I hate to keep take coming back to Kamala Harris, right? The thing about even so, the the statistics that you mentioned, those statistics are relatively true, even for people who are of of so called mixed racial ancestry who have a white parent, because of this this global logic that blackness is a contaminant. Mm-hmm. It is a global logic. It even when we think about so, like we, you know, when we talk about the sort of exceptional conditions of continental Africans who migrate to the to the colonial metropoles or to the U.S., that's a very small percentage of the population, right? But when we think about the again the material conditions of the vast majority of continental Africans, again, we are looking at very similar sort of life outcomes as as the sort of we you know in the americas we're dealing with the sort of afterlives of slavery and on the continent we're dealing with the afterlives of colonialism right yep. and so for me it is it's always important to articulate that slavery and, and colonization are two sides of the same coin it's never to say that they're exactly the same thing but they have led to very similar material conditions and i think and, I, and this is the only place where i think the the kind of U.S. exceptionalism thesis holds up is because the U.S. has been so great at exploiting labor globally, the worst of material conditions in the U.S. can be, you know, slightly better than some of the material conditions in Latin America, in the Caribbean, on the continent, whatever. But that's really the only difference because in, in terms of what, as a society, people have access to, the, again, the, the statistics are the same, right? Yep. So even like, you know, when people make these ignorant ass comments like, well, you know, I'm happy to have been born in the U.S. at least because, it, or at least I'm not, you know, living in Africa. At least I'm not living yep. so and so. And all that is, is a, is a commentary on material conditions that people don't understand what has created those material conditions. For real. Right. And so this is a part of the conversation that you and I were having before about even though we're not fighting over ideas, ideas are important to the way we think and conceptualize our struggles, how we think and conceptualize one another and how we envision what's possible. Right. And and I think it's really important you mentioned that because I found that honestly adopting I only recently, by the way, adopted this kind of material approach to like understanding race. And it's honestly been such a like a weight lift off my shoulder in the sense that I find that a lot of the time people speak of race in such essentialist terms mm-hmm. that you kind of like it doesn't and then you become one of those people year in and year out of complaining of what this group did to you mm-hmm. and what that group did to me I'm like mm, okay that's I get that and while the therapeutic is necessary I don't it doesn't give me any organizational value mm-hmm. organizational values are okay now we have the material condition we have the stats and we know what we can work towards so mm-hmm. I find it to be very, very helpful. Okay, let's move on a little bit now. Talking about all things African. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, this thing, this, they talk about, you know, certain things that are un-African. They say, oh, homosexuality is mm-hmm. un-African. The gender, the way the gender debates today is all un-African. Which is funny enough, I don't know why I didn't think of this before. But I thought to myself, hang on a minute. People are all getting confused about using they. And I thought, hang on a minute. Wolof is not even a gendered language. Like, a lot of, of, <laughs> of indigenous languages don't don't play the gender game. That we, we don't have your We have we have man woman boy mm-hmm. girl. Mm-hmm. But we, when we say like someone said something, it's always like neutral. Mm-hmm. It's always all the actions are neutral. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, crap. Mm-hmm. So you know, England's catching them quite late. But yeah, what do you think of this point of these things are natural? And normally, what comes in that is you know 
women have their roles, you know, very patriarchic kind of understandings and, you know. So we already know that I do not, <laughs> I identify as a Pan-African feminist. And I don't, and I very much believe that the things that women are so-called limited to, even in terms of physical strength, I think is a result of generations of being limited to those physical tasks. I don't mm. think, I don't know if we even know what physically women could be capable of if we had different expectations of women. And even the way that we understand strength and, you know, like I was, I was looking at those, well, you know how they do those experiments and they like make men feel period cramps, menstrual cramps. I saw that and I thought, God forbid. What? Nah, you know what? Because I was like, and I was like, but hang on a minute, wait, wait, off topic. What the hell are you not feeling? Because <laughs> well, it is, it's awful. It's awful. Like surviving out here with that pain. Nah, sir. But that's what I'm saying. Like, that's what I'm like. Okay, so this is the thing. It is both true and insulting when we are, you know, going through moods or whatever to say, oh, are you on your period? On the one hand, imagine, and, and I think the only other people that can identify with this outside of gender are people who've lived with chronic illnesses, right? Mm. Particularly people who live with chronic pain. You learn how to deal with it because you don't have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. But this is how you would feel if you were like daily in pain and how that like, it makes you relate to people. It makes you irritable. It makes you not feel well. And that the nature of capitalist life says that you just got to keep going on because most of you guarantee you that most women would love the opportunity when, when they are going through that to not have any other responsibilities. Mm. And it's a difference if you choose to do something, but to not have to do anything, because yeah. you know, and and it varies. Like our bodies are different. Sometimes they're worse than others. Sometimes they're not. Right. And so it's a lot of changes that you're constantly going through. Right. And all and all that is said to say that the way we think about strength and physicality is very like externally centered. And we don't think about all of the different kinds of ways that we experience our bodies. And so in terms of like things women do, things men do, I mean, at the moment, it may be different in the near future. Women give birth to children. But other than that, I mean, I don't really understand what you like, because I mean, because I can understand at different points in time, right, when we. You know, there, there is a reason why people created a sort of gender division of labor for expediency, yes. right? But that's not where we are in human history. Like, yes. we can do so many things. If a man can take care of a baby from the time they come out of the womb at this point. Mm-hmm. They, it's ideal for them to be able to breastfeed, but it's not necessary, yeah. right? True. And I mean, breast and is best. But... It is best, but it's not necessary. True. So, and, and I say that to say like this notion, these kind of essentialist notions about, and, and the only reason why it's best, right, is because a part of what happens with breastfeeding is that your immune system is transferred right? and that what happens with formula is that babies are introduced to so much extra sugar and things early on in life. That's not necessarily mm-hmm. healthy for them, right? So, I mean, there, there are very particular reasons why that is the case. It's not, you know... I, th- I think we have to always think about the the sort of scientific realities of what these things are, right? And not reduce them to these essentialist gender notions in the same way that we're not trying to reduce certain things to essentialist racial notions. But the charge of these things, like, okay, you know, 
people have this thing of oh they're pushing this agenda. Yeah. <laughs> people love an agenda, isn't it? Everything's a flipping agenda. Yeah. But yeah, oh you know, and it's un-African and but this specific claim, even though I think I forgot. I'm gonna kick myself now. There's an amazing scholar who was actually the wife of Hassan Sisse, who wrote, like, basically she dispels a lot of these things about West Africans, pre-colonial Africa. Yes, West Africa, all over the continent. All over the continent, yeah. So let's just say, for for the sake of argument, it, it was not, let's say that, you know, homosexual and transgender people did not exist. Mm-hmm. They do now. And so now what? Are we really going to say that we... If if we have a particular politics about what it is that we're trying to achieve, are we really going to be the same group of people that relegates an entire other group of people to the same status that we've been fighting against? So for me, honestly, even though it's untrue, it is very it is very true that homosexuality and gender fluidity have existed time in perpetuity. Exactly. But but even if it didn't, what what's really at stake? And for me, that's the most important thing. What's really at stake is people being able to live whole, full, healthy, cared for, and and flourishing lives. And there is nothing in my politics that says because you love someone or have sex with someone of the same gender or because you identify as a gender that was different than what was assigned to you at birth, that you are somehow less deserving of that life. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's fun. The, the, the politics of it is fundamentally the most important thing. And so I don't even, for me, most of the time, I don't even care to have the conversation about whether homosexuality or gender fluidity existed. One, because I know that it did. But two, because that's not the most important thing in this moment. Well, how about this thing, which I disagree with, because I feel like I always point to Huey Newton's speech on queer liberation, I think in 1970s. Mm-hmm. You know, people say, oh, it's an agenda. But how about this kind of claim? Look how far they've been able to make headways mm-hmm. and black communities are still lagging behind. Yeah. But that's because, who was it? Was it Dave Chappelle? that made a joke about Caitlyn Jenner that people found in poor taste. But essentially his argument was that even though Caitlyn Jenner is a trans woman at this point, she continues to enjoy all the privileges of white men, right? Yeah. White men get to move and change and exist in certain ways that get validated, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, it that doesn't negate or it doesn't, what is the word that I'm looking for? Even as certain communities within the sort of LGBTQ, certain, what do you call it, sub-communities within the LGBTQIA plus community have enjoyed certain rights, what does that look like for Black, queer, and trans people? Because what we know in the U.S. is that Black, queer, and trans youth are the highest percentage of homeless youth. Wow. So even amongst that group, (laughs) <laughs> their blackness is still trumping Trump. Yeah. Um, their status as either homosexual or queer or however that you know, however they identify. It so even even as those communities get some kind of sort of legal legislation, it still ain't trickling down to us, even as we mm-hmm. exist outside of those communities. Mm-hmm. So then what? <laughs> no, no, you're right, for real. I feel yeah. like I just think you know, people are the more and more you you realize, especially our black community. Again, ooh, my hot take is that, I mean, there's no such thing really as a black community. I mean, we like mm-hmm. to talk to ourselves as this homogenous group when we're not, but that's, a, that's for another day. Kind of find I don't want to respond to that, though. I don't, when I Please say do. community, I, it's not even about homogenizing. Because to okay. me, I take for granted the fact that we are, that we are heterogeneous. 
mm-hmm. as a community. And like this, and this is going to go off on another tangent. I won't do it for too long, but it's one of the things that used to annoy me when people used to make comments about, oh, why are you going to an HBCU, a historically black college university? Mm-hmm. Because the real world is not like that. But what I also learned going to a black school is that I didn't just learn it there, but what I also saw is that we are heterogeneous. We exist uh, in different class positions. We exist yeah. along different racial, I mean, not racial, we exist along different uh, religious religious yeah. affiliations, different sexuality, gender affiliate, like all different kinds of, we speak different languages. We exist in all different kinds of ways. And, mm-hmm. and I think only people who don't imagine themselves as a part of a black community believe that that black community is is homogenous. Mm, There's no way that I can believe that 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 my understanding of what a black community is 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 homogenous. I, it's, too, it's too many different experiences and too many different lived realities that I see on a daily basis. Facts. So Facts. I never saying that a community exists for me is never about homogenize the community what it does but what does link us is what we've been talking about a particular history of exploitation and a continued experience with that to this day hmm. for real for real i mean okay i i fully hear that i'm I, i'm not that is the case no one can argue against that but i feel sometimes when we speak about you know as this kind of it's almost like this mythic black community as if to say that we have some collective shared identity which which we obviously don't we obviously don't even though some people like to think of it like that and i feel ultimately the reason why i find it a bit problematic is because you find those with particular class positions those who are like you know the petty bourgeoisie they exploit that yeah they exploit that as they they exploit that homogenization that oh we all know we're part of the same community i mean i don't know i don't know how you feel about this statement but i was reading a book black awakening in capitalist america Mm. and robert allen says that you know the civil rights movement was a middle class affair it was (laughs) and i was like shit it was like when i thought about yeah it was and you find time and time again you find that capital only yields when you challenge it when you're confronted but then it has two ways either it's gonna like all out oppress people and repress people which we've seen happen in america and around the world or it just allows a few in mm-hmm. but then those then people are put up as look this is a they came from your community and then time and time again you find that kind of that, that those people from that particular class find it difficult to position themselves am i black i'm a middle class white you know what i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so. I mean, and this goes back to our early conversation. This is why representation matters, but it's not the only thing. Because if because if we stop at representation, then we're cool with what do you call it? Oprah Winfrey, a Barack Obama, yeah. Beyonce, or Jay Z, or whatever. But we know it's more than that because the, because even even as they are experiencing their own kinds of prejudicial treatment. They are themselves engaging in exploitative practices, right? They're they're exploiting the very communities yep. to which they belong in order to, to generate that level of wealth. And that's why you, we can never limit ourselves to, to, to representation because representation doesn't allow us to have a true politics because all we care about is seeing face somewhere. How much does it, how much does it matter then? It matters. I don't know how it, much. It, it, I mean, you it, want me, it, you it, want me it, to give it, you a percentage? No, no, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> 10% representation, 50% politics. No, <laughs> no. but insofar as, is it the fact that, okay, getting a black, or we all agree black faces in high places doesn't do shit. Mm-hmm. So is it is it just a fact of having representation plus the politics then, as opposed to just saying one or the other? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's the only thing. I would take the politics over the representation. 100%. <laughs> but yeah, it's what I think. You want to take like a, a, a dope white or dope non black leftist who's got dope politics over like a Kamala Harris? Of course I would. Absolutely. I mean, that was that was Sequel's race position about Fidel Castro at the Tricontinental. Oh, what did he say? I'm reading something now about it. He literally said, Is, uh, what is the word? Is Fidel not more of our brother, more of an African than somebody like Leopold Sangor? Oh, oh, that's what, it was. Tea. If you go look at Secretary Tricontinental speech, yeah, okay, I'm gonna do that. Yeah, oh wow, he, he literally <laughs> said that because he said that, like, because of Castro's commitment to African liberation struggles through providing, you know, troops, resources, whatever, whatever. You know, Secretary and Kwame Nkrumah were very much opposed to the kind of cultural nationalism that Leopold Senghor or the Negritudist movement. Yeah. In mm-hmm. fact, I mean, maybe because they were both in French West Africa, Secretary was, he was like, fuck Senghor. <laughs> <laughs> in a way, that's, that's important, right? Like, and the thing is, you know, a lot of people... You know, they they look at the sort of negritudist movement, the black arts movement, as you know these really sort of important turn of events. But it matters that they ascend to the level that they do without the kind of politics that they need, right? Mm-hmm. And so I very much so. Like I, the reason why I say representation matters is because you know I can't I can't deny what it meant to go grow up and go through school and have a black woman teacher who who said yo you can do these things even as these other little white women are challenging you know are are trying to stop you from doing those things so it matters but it's not everything because there are plenty of people who get through those processes without any visible visible signs of representation True. right so it matters but it is not by any means everything or of most course. things but I, but i also think my issue with this notion that we have to choose things is we can walk and chew gum. Like we can yeah, hold we, we can we, hold we, space we for from scarcity, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I can we can hold space for knowing that representation matters without saying that it's everything, and also be able to critique people who ascend to levels of power who might look like us, but don't but don't create policies that benefit the general masses of people. And I think we can we can very we can and we should and we must hold both of those things. Okay. Okay. And finally, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, I've have this has been a really dope conversation. But all that means is I'm gonna get you on again in the future. <laughs> <laughs> but finally, finally, because clearly I, I'm not in. I don't seem to have yet managed to ascend into the same circles that you are in. Oh, here we go. But, <laughs> until, I, however, you recently came back from Venezuela mm-hmm. from the conference. Briefly, how was it? It was a really interesting experience. So the the conference that I came back, it was the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples of the America. I mean, sorry, of the Peoples of the World. Okay. And so what the occasion was, so like in 2019, the Venezuelan government hosted a series of like smaller meetings, conferences among sort of, uh, what do you call it? Like what you might call interest groups, right? So they had a conference for women, a conference for Afro-descended people, a conference for indigenous people, for youth for labor union workers, for people who worked in the media, for LGBTQ uh, identified people's sexual and gender diversity, for educators. And the idea, I should say, in particular to have conversations about 
those subsectors of the population's relationship to left politics, to socialism, right? So not just bringing them together in a sort of general rah-rah way, but to think about the role of these particular communities in building a global left movement. And this conference that happened this year was supposed to happen last year, but COVID, whatever. And so what they ended up having it this year on the occasion of the Battle of Carabobo. And the Battle of Carabobo was when Simon Bolivar essentially fought this battle for Latin American independence. You know, the mm-hmm. territory that was Grand Colombia, which is Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Venezuela. Sorry, parts of northern Peru, Venezuela, what's Peru? Oh, Panama, Panama. Mm-hmm. And so this is, you know, across the Americas is generally an occasion that many countries across Latin America celebrate, but that their the goal was to both think within these sort of smaller subgroups and then think across these subgroups about what some of the goals are in terms of building a left socialist movement and mm-hmm. how do we do that from the perspective of Afro-descended people, from the perspective of indigenous people, from the perspective of women, from, from the perspective of youth. And for me, it's always, you know, conferences are like interesting spaces because mm-hmm. on the one hand, there are a lot, they can be a lot of pomp and circumstance, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like resolutions and declarations, which I think, which I think are meaningful, but they're only meaningful insofar as, you know, we work to materialize those, those resolutions and declarations. But I think in a, in the sort of more material way, it's important to, be in community with people who share similar values. And to know that even as I sit here in Quincy, Massachusetts, in this place that's very wide and very expensive and very gentrified and whatever, that there are other people in the world fighting for similar struggles. And so that to me is what I often find useful and rejuvenating about these kinds of moments is being able to like be reminded that like there are many people in the world who Mm -hmm. care about and are working towards these same kinds of issues all over the world and like literally from all over the world. So, I mean, I think that there are many things to say about the conference and like people, I think you'll see report backs and and, and pieces and things come out over the next couple of weeks about it. But I'm, you know, happy to have been invited to participate in the Congress. I think in terms of the Afro-descended, some of the sort of goals, like one of the things that they, you know, are really thinking about is is thinking about Pan-Africanism as a way of thinking politically about the role and the plight of, of people of African descent and the and our sort of importance and primacy in these global left struggles. And mm-hmm. that is what, even though there is continued, you know, Venezuela is a complicated place. Racism continues to exist. But in insofar as the, the PSUV, the, the Socialist Party of Venezuela, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, is trying to at least think with the communities of Afro-descendants about, you know, the particularities of the struggles of people of African descent on the left, that's promising. And so I think we have to, you know, continue to stake our claim in that. Thank you. Thank you. You see, this is why I had to bring back one of my faves, Dr. Leila. This was a (laughs) dope conversation. This is a dope and insightful conversation. As always, it's literally me doing my intellectualism in, in public in front of everyone and bringing you on this journey. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Mamadou on the Malcolm Effect. Please like, comment, subscribe, be that on Spotify, Apple, or YouTube. Until next time, peace out.